Hello, Health Investor. Welcome to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast. Today, you're going to hear from Dr. Sarah Adler. Dr. Adler is CEO and founder of Wave Life, a mental health platform that pairs affordable and quality coaching with engaging and immersive skill building for Gen Z. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and former hedge fund analyst obsessed with improving access to high quality mental health care. Dr. Adler is also a clinical associate professor of psychiatry at Stanford University. In the episode, she shares how to identify if emotional eating is causing real issues for you, why getting a handle on emotional eating is a separate goal from weight control, why dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT, is the best strategy for cutting back on emotional eating, and more. If you're liking this podcast, I'd be so grateful if you'd write a review and share it with a friend. Enjoy the episode. Simonson, Certified Nutrition Coach and your host of the Health Investment Podcast. If you're ready to look and feel your best without any confusion, frustration, or stress, you're in the right place. Each week, I interview experts and share no-nonsense, research-backed tips so that you can finally lose weight for good, eat healthy long-term, have the high energy you crave, and feel like a million bucks. I'm so happy you're here with me today. Don't forget to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. Hi, Brooke. I am so happy to be here and cannot wait to dive in. I We just had a brief little chat before the episode and it made me extremely excited to hear everything you're going to share. Uh, I think we're on the same wavelength about a lot of things. And I was mentioning a lot of my clients struggle with emotional eating. I've had other people who specialize in emotional eating on the podcast, but I'm constantly looking to share new angles and thoughts about this topic because I do think it is a challenge for many people, whether they even realize it or not. I've, I have one client who like eight weeks in said, okay, this is a thing for me. I never actually realized that the emotional component was such a strong piece of my eating patterns. Um, so I, I can't wait to dive in. Can you start a bit by telling us about your background and specifically what led to your interest in the psychology of binge eating? Yes, absolutely. So I am a clinical psychologist. I'm a professor at Stanford, and I started off really focusing on binge eating almost accidentally um, as a trainee, as a graduate student. I was very interested in the other end of the spectrum, which is often goes along with binge eating, we now know, right, which is the sort of anorexia nervosa um, restrictive end of the eating disorder spectrum. And one of my colleagues um, said to me, I would love to have you, one of my mentors, now my colleague, um, said to me, I would love to have you work on this binge eating study that I'm working on right now. Is that something that you would be interested in? And I sort of thought about it and said, like, I cannot pass up this opportunity to work with this amazing person, Deborah Safer at Stanford. 
and um, and also really understand more uh, about this continuum when we think about disordered eating. And so I sort of fell into it. Um, when I did, though, I actually ultimately started as I started to learn more and more about emotional eating. I started to realize we all emotionally eat all of us like Thanksgiving is an emotional eating holiday. No one eats more because they're really that much more hungry on this random Thursday or when we go order popcorn at the movie theater, right? That's emotional eating and that it's conditioned. We sort of have a, uh, it's not like we're, oh, we, we, we sort of think, oh, we're at this movie theater. We maybe as kids got popcorn at the movie theater. That's an emotional response. And eating is just highly is emotional. And so really kind of starting to think about um, my own family of origin and I was like, there's a ton of emotional eating everywhere. And so I really just got, got very, very, very fascinated about how some people tend to use food as a coping strategy um, and how that can really be a continuum. It can be very, very severe where it takes over folks' entire lives, or it can be like eating popcorn in a movie theater. Interesting. And when you said popcorn in a movie theater, I'm sure listeners perked up, as did I of never identifying that as a type of emotional eating and something that I would say the majority of us have engaged in at some point of our life. So when we're talking about emotional eating, is it something that we want to cut back on so we get to a space on the continuum that feels healthy versus just eliminating altogether? It it sounds like what you're saying, this isn't something we eliminate altogether or that should not be a goal. I, I don't think so at all. I think that um, the relationship that we have with food is so complex and so mired in our families of origin and our culture, in our um, in our physiology. So it's like it's biological, it's psychological, it's societal, or as we lovingly say, the biopsychosocial model of thinking about emotional eating or our relationship with food that it's impossible. It would be impossible to eliminate entirely. I mean, I think as we sort of have gotten more sophisticated in um, we no longer think about the mind and body as two separate entities. We no longer think of like what's happening in your body as separate from your emotional experience, right? Like neurotransmitters and neurochemistry and emotions are actually physiological. And as we've sort of advanced to stop separating mind and body, I think it really opens the door for um, asking the question, is this thing that I'm doing interfering with my ability to live the life that I want? Mm. And if the answer is yes, it is interfering with my ability to live the life that I want. Is it causing me distress? Then maybe we take steps to change it. But like, you know, if you're going and enjoying your popcorn because you happen to have a a, a, a reinforcement or like a, a paired association with like, when I go to the movie theater, I order popcorn. That's not really interfering with your life. Like why change it? So yeah, that was going to be my next question. How do you know if it's a problem for you? So that seems to be how you know. Just that one question, is this interfering with my life. Yeah. Is it interfering with the life I want? Is with how the I, life I want. Is, is okay. how I think about it. Um, and I think it, it's a little bit of an adaptation of how psychologists and psychiatrists think about psychopathology or mental illness, which I think is problematic in itself. But we tend to think of it as, is this thing so bad that it's causing me distress or interfering with my activities of daily living or functioning? Um, and I sort of paraphrase that into is it interfering with the life that you want that you see for yourself? Is it is it a barrier to that? And um, is it a significant enough barrier to you that you really want to spend time on it and change it? So I think, you know, in the medical field, we can 
pathologize that into obesity. It's like obesity is going to interfere with your, like it's going to, you're going to get diabetes. You're going to have a heart attack. There's like real long-term health reasons why you might think I can't be a healthy person and interfere. But you know, there are also plenty of overweight folks who don't have medical conditions and don't seem to get them. So again, like it's all about you and what is your valued living and what is the life you want to lead? And are you behaving in a way that's in line with those values? What are some of the most common triggers you've identified in terms of emotional eating? Yeah. So I think, um, again, this goes, uh, you can think about it from a continuum or a spectrum. I think in the, in the severe cases, like for folks who are meet criteria for binge eating disorder, which is in the DSM, it's a psych, a psychopathology, um, we um, really see negative emotions as the, the main trigger. It's like emotions that interfere with our ability to feel good. Um, shame, guilt, sadness, boredom um, can all be triggers. And so all of those negative emotions are emotions that we are generally kind of poorly trained not to deal with or not to cope with are usually the triggers that we see. And what ends up happening is that when we have those negative emotions, like if, for example, we haven't learned how to express them or cope with them, or we've learned healthier coping strategies, we can turn towards food, which especially high fat, high sugar, high salt, right? Um, just work on the HPA access of our brains, which is like the dopaminergic, the dopamine, right? Um, it just lights it up like, and makes you feel better immediately. So it really creates this sort of vicious cycle where let's say I have a huge fight with my boyfriend and I'm feeling all the things, all the negative emotions and I'm overwhelmed by that. Um, and, and I don't, I haven't learned a whole lot of good coping strategies to deal with that. Um, that cupcake, that cereal, that whatever it is, will actually calm down my parasympathetic nervous system. It will numb me out a little bit and I'll immediately feel better. And that can become a, a really vicious cycle if you're not aware of it. It can be really conditioned. Mm -hmm. And now we also know, which is really fascinating, that there are some people whose brains are just more sensitive um, to that dopaminergic reaction than others. So there are just some of us who are more highly sensitive towards feeling that reward of food in a very different way. And it can become conditioned. I've had a lot of patients who, um, when they were tell me, um, oh, when I was a child and I was crying, um, my mom handed me a cookie, right? That's sort of like, or I learned how to self-soothe using food. And that's what we see a lot of times in the, um, in the sort of very severe end of the continuum. Mm. Um, but anything can be a trigger. And I think that that's what's really interesting on the less severe back to the popcorn, or I'll use the um, scenario of, uh, I am highly conditioned personally. Um, I went to a lot of Philadelphia Eagles games, which is a football team, if you're not aware, mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a young child. And um, Every time we, the first thing we did before we even went to our seats is we got hot dog and pretzels and whatever, like we, we got our food and then we sat down and it was a part of the experience. So 40 years later, if I show up at a football game, my trigger, like the emotion of being in that football stadium is like, oh, we need to go do these things. But then if I take a step, I'm like, wait, do I need to wait? But, but my urge, it's so conditioned, that cycle, mm -hmm. of it's so familiar um, that that is also an emotional eating response, right? I'm thinking even as you're talking, 
where my husband and I at night will sometimes watch a TV show if we're in a series or we'll watch a movie. And I even feel a difference if we're putting a movie on versus a TV show, because a movie to me does have the trigger of kind of, oh, get the popcorn and the whatever, because it's movie time versus we could watch the same two hours at night and it could be of a TV show. And I don't feel that same pull. It's amazing. It's really powerful that, um, and that is actually an an emotional response, right? Mm -hmm. We don't think about it because it's not like you're, um, but it could be joy, right? It could be Mm -hmm. excitement. It could be anything, any sort of emotional neurochemical change in your body that is like, oh, I want this. I'm going to pair this now with food. Some of the stressors or triggers seem very immediate. So I'll hear from clients, you know, a stressful meeting at work, or you set a fight with a boyfriend, or, you know, you put the movie on Netflix. Those all feel very in the here and now. And I'm sure there are coping strategies you're going to kind of share to deal with those. I'm wondering how do those triggers different from the ones from early childhood if we do have some type of trauma and this is more of kind of a deep-seated trigger that we may not even know is the cause of our eating? Are the, the coping mechanisms different for both types of triggers? Yeah, no, that's a great question because I think, yes, we do see a very high incidence of binge eating in uh, and emotional eating in trauma patients and trauma survivors. And um, the reason for that, we think, is that um, part of um, when you especially have had a physical, a sexual trauma, or even an intense trauma, any sort of trauma, um, one of the symptoms of trauma is a, is a derealization or dissociation from your body. So if you think about it, when you are traumatized, it, it throws off your physiological sense of, um, of what's scary or threatening and what's not. And what we know is that for trauma survivors, they have a much, much, much higher level of stress at their baseline all the time. That's a very, very difficult thing to pay attention to all the time. Because if you think about it, your body's response to something scary is designed to make you pay attention to it, right? Like you almost get hit by a car, your heart rate goes up, your your cortisol goes up, you're suddenly at high alert. People who suffer from trauma, they're kind of like that a lot more of the time than someone who hasn't. And your natural response to that is you can't pay attention all the time. It becomes exhausting. And so you sort of dissociate from it. Mm. It's there, but you're not paying attention to your body nearly as much. And what we know is that when you're not paying attention to your body as much, you're not mindful of what your emotions are. You're not paying attention to your hunger cues. You're not paying attention to all the things we talk about when we talk about mindful eating or mindfulness in general. And so you're doing things more on autopilot, which gives you less agency to actually um, to make mindful decisions. Right. Mm. If that makes If that makes sense. So yeah. That's- why we end up seeing a lot more emotional eating um, or sort of more autopilot eating or more coping strategies to try to, again, bring that down. But there's less um, awareness necessarily of like, oh my God, my stomach is so full. I should stop right now. I want to take a quick break from the episode to tell you about a company I've been impressed by for years. Thrive Market is an online shopping platform that offers thousands of products at 25 to 50% off retail prices. 
For just $60 a year, you get access to a wide variety of premium pantry staples, supplements, beauty products, and home goods at unbeatable prices. To put things in perspective, I save about $20 to $30 per shipment, which means my annual membership fee pays for itself after just two orders. My favorite part about Thrive Market is that for every paid membership, they donate a membership to a low-income family, veteran, or teacher. So not only do you save money on your purchases, but you also make healthy products accessible to everyone. To read my full Thrive Market review, steal my shopping list of over 150 items, and save additional money on your first order, visit thehealthinvestment.com slash Thrive Market, or just click through the link in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. Would your first plan of attack for somebody who says, okay, emotional eating is getting in the way of the life I want, and it is some type of trauma that happened in their past, would you say the first course of action is for them to actually get therapy and deal with that past trauma before even thinking about the food stuff? Or is it okay to jump in with some of the emotional eating strategies? Like, can those help with that deep-seated trauma? Or is is that too much to kind of tackle? It needs kind of therapy work first. I, I think it depends. And okay. I'm, I'm very, I'm not of the belief of a one size fits all, no pun intended model for anything. Mm-hmm. Each individual comes to us and we need to make an assessment of what is going to help them. Because I think a lot of trauma patients um, don't want to do the the trauma work. The trauma work is really, really hard. They're not ready yet. And so mm-hmm. actually focusing on something that's more tangible, like improving their relationship with food can actually be really helpful, can help them gain agency or control. Most in my experience will hit a point where they can't advance without really dealing Mm. with um, a trauma. And I don't want to generalize. I would say people who have severe PTSD or who really are sort of in that severity of dealing. There's some folks who have had trauma who are doing just fine and they're actually living you know, lives that are in line with their values and that's okay. So I do think that um, as practitioners who are focusing on weight control or, and that's a whole kind of another issue, but focusing on binge eating or emotional issue, emotional eating, which is different than weight control. Um, you have to be really mindful of if someone does have trauma in their past, they may reach a point where they need to go do the trauma work in order to really, um, come into their body enough to, um, to, to, to finish the work, if that's mm-hmm. even what they still want to focus on. I think with, with folks and especially with disordered eating, what we get a lot of is a confusion between my life will be better if I'm thinner mm-hmm. and versus, um, my life will be better if I'm engaging in actions that feel more values can grow and our values aligned. Can you expand on what you just said, how binge eating and emotional eating are separate from weight control? Yeah. So one of the really interesting things is um, is that we, we know that there is a huge overlap between binge eating and obesity. The numbers range like 50 to 60 percent. But that also means that there is a subset of people who 
you know, are overweight or, and actually have no binge eating or emotional eating. And so we have to be really mindful of that. And a lot of the data show that um, just because you get your binge eating under control doesn't necessarily mean you're going to lose a lot of weight. So the disordered thinking that comes from pathologizing your weight or your shape Actually, we kind of have to look at it and segment it out from the behavior of binge eating or the function of the emotional eating, because it's not always the same thing. It's not like people are necessarily coming in and saying, I'm fat and that's what's interfering with my my life. They're coming in and they're saying my obsession with food and the behaviors, the binge behaviors that I'm engaging in are causing me financial ruin. There are, I can't think about anything else. I can't focus. And that's what's interfering. Sometimes those things get conflated, but really we kind of have to look at them separately. Um, I think a lot of folks also in the eating disorder community, and I don't ascribe, subscribe to this theory as much as to say like, we will not help you lose weight. That is not something that like a psychologist should do. I don't actually believe that because I think that if that's something values congruent to you, that I should not ignore that and I should think about it. But I, I want to be really clear that you're stopping, your binge eating going away or your emotional eating going away may not lead to weight loss. That may be something we have to really actually think about quite differently. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. So what is dialectical behavior therapy, abbreviated DBT, and how can this be a powerful tool for addressing emotional eating? So dialectical behavior therapy was initially invented um, by, it's a form of cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT, which we sort of see in the psychological world everywhere. Um, and it was originally invented by a really brilliant um, psychologist named Marsha Linehan. And she developed it um, because she kept seeing patients um, come in who were suicidal or self-harming, who were engaging in these impulsive behaviors in a way to cope with really hard negative emotions. And so she developed this um, kind of form of therapy, which is really predicated on the fact that there is a trigger and the trigger promotes a behavior and that is an unwanted behavior and it leads to negative emotion, which then restarts the cycle of the, the trigger, which then leads to the behavior and kind of comes into this cycle that we talked about earlier. And um, <clears throat> what, what my mentor, Deborah Safer, and another fabulous psychologist named Christy Telch discovered was that this was a great... Um, this could really work for uh, for binge eating. So for mm-hmm. bulimia nervosa and for binge eating, because the same triggers or emotion dysregulation as we talk about were present in these patients, as we saw in patients with um, a lot of self-harm behaviors or a lot of kind of suicidal thinking and, and action. And so they did a study at Stanford, probably about a couple of years before I got there and found that there were really, really great results on this. And so then um, for in uh, bulimia Nervosa. And so Deborah and I took this, um, rewrote a manual, which turned into a book and um, a self-help book and really did a couple of studies on this in the binge eating, emotional eating population and found really good results. And the concept and the idea behind dialectical behavior therapy is that this cycle of triggers, emotion dysregulation, behaviors that cause more negative 
emotion, which then cycles and cycles and cycles can get broken. If we can slow down the cycle enough and add in alternative skills to that eating. So if eating is the coping strategy, we can get people to learn and practice to acknowledge that the cycle is happening and really add in lots of other skills. And usually they find two, three, four, five of them that work and they can break the cycle, which means Mm. they start to feel better and the cycle can they can reduce the behavior feel more agency feel more effectiveness and the the dialectical piece is um it actually comes from eastern philosophy it's the idea that two seemingly opposite things can exist at one time and it's sort of complicated and not super relevant to i think the intervention itself but like we talk about dialectics all the time in my house but <laughs> it's it's sort of the idea that you can both accept things the way they are and also change them at the same time, which are sort of these two opposite ideas. And it seems to really resonate with folks who are struggling with binge eating, who are constantly forcing or weight loss for saying, I need to lose weight. I need to change. I need to change. I need to change. I need to change. But then they fail and it makes them feel terrible. So what we really try to do is get them to understand that like, actually where you are is okay (laughs) to really Mm -hmm. accept that part of themselves that wherever you are right now you are doing the best you can and through that acceptance of that which they never give themselves we can sort of calm them down enough to then motivate them to change Mm -hmm. so that's the dialectical piece interesting and what are some of the skills that you then use to help you replace the emotional eating yeah, so dialectal DBT is actually has um four sort of domains of skills. And the first one we teach is all about mindfulness. And as we sort of talked about before, part of what happens with this overeating cycle is people really do start to become divorced from their bodies and their own emotions. And so if we know that tough emotions or physiological sensations even are triggers for the behaviors, the first thing we need to do is really slow down and learn about how to notice what's actually happening in ourselves and our bodies. So Mm -hmm. there are a whole panoply of skills in the mindfulness domain. Then we teach emotion regulation skills. And again, we're talking about that fight you have with your boyfriend, that really stressful day with your uh, with your boss at work. That brings up a whole series of emotions that causes us to then engage in other behaviors. So the mindfulness makes us aware of those emotions. And then there's a whole series of skills um, and tools that we teach to help you regulate those emotions or downregulate so that you can come into a more rational space and make good decisions. So Mm. decisions that are in line with your values. Then we have another series of skills called distress tolerance skills, which are like when things just go terribly and things are completely out of your control, what can you do to not make things worse? Um, and a lot of our patients, uh, that, that's, it's really resonant to them is that like, and, and overeating will make things worse because it will make you feel bad. So how, what kinds of skills can you use in those moments? And then the last series of skills that we teach they're around interpersonal effectiveness. So how can, because our relationships with other people can often be a huge source of trigger, how can we learn how to communicate in ways that are more effective? We noticed that there was a deficit um, in a lot of our patients in terms of their communication, which was leading to some of these trigger events. So how can you learn how to be effective and how can you learn how to um, tolerate situations where the other person is not a great communicator. So these are sort of the four domains of skills that we teach in DBT. Um, 
yeah. So there, there, um, there are hundreds of skills that you can teach. And so like going into each one of them would be hard, but I'm happy right, to right. <laughs> Please go, go through all several all of them yeah. <laughs> in the next 20 minutes. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. uh, so would somebody need to seek out a therapist for guidance and learning these skills or you have a book? We do have a book. Yeah. So is the book a good starting place? I mean, is this something that you can kind of uh, do yourself with the assistance of your book, for example, or do you recommend seeking out a professional? So I think the issue is um, I always recommend seeking out the help of a professional. If you can find one who's specialized, you can afford it and they have availability. Mm -hmm. Right. So like those are really big ifs. Part of the reason um, that Deborah and I wrote this book um, is because it was actually came out of my um, my dissertation work when I was a grad student. And the reason that I really wanted to write this was because um, the number of people who are actually trained in this effective treatment are, is so small. And this is sort of for eating disorder treatment in general. Um, there's no way that everyone who needed it could actually have access to it. Mm. And, and part of my whole um, obsession in life is making sure that that people who don't have access to high quality healthcare, mental health care, get it. And so that was sort of the, the, the impetus for the book. And so what we did was um, we wrote it as, um, as a self-help manual, mm-hmm. as something that hopefully would, we could disseminate. And it's actually now it's really cool. And I don't mean to plug the book at all, but um uh, it's something that's been translated into, I think, like seven or eight different languages. Cool. Like I have a Japanese copy, which is really cool. I don't know if it's culturally competent to do that, but they wanted it. So they didn't. Mm. Um, and so really it, it is designed to be a self-help book. Um, and I think that um, for some people, that's just not going to be enough, but it is at least a good way um, to start being used. And the other thing about it is that I didn't want it to be written so that um, you needed a psychologist to do it. So I, I really wanted to write it to, so that you could maybe bring it to a coach or you could mm. bring it to um, another kind of helper who maybe wasn't trained and you could work through it together. Because I think it's really hard to do. I think self-help books are really hard to, to kind of really, it's hard to do anything alone, behavior yeah. change especially. Outside of hosting this podcast, I work as a nutrition coach specializing in evidence-based sustainable weight loss. If you're ready to stop yo-yo dieting and start living a healthy, active lifestyle you're proud of, I'd love to work with you in one of my programs. Unlike restrictive, one-size-fits-all diets that only provide short-term results, I help you adopt science-backed nutrition and lifestyle habits that work for your unique likes, dislikes, and time constraints so you can lose weight permanently, have high energy throughout the day, feel completely in control of cravings, and stay consistent long-term. To learn more, visit thehealthinvestment.com or follow me on Instagram and TikTok at The Health Investment. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm literally going to order it after this call. So <laughs> just knowing it could help so much, so many people um, and start telling them about it also in my practice. So I'm excited about this. Uh, the acceptance piece I find for many of my clients can be the hardest. And so we even kind of joked and talked about this before the episode, the both and, I think I said that. And you're like, oh my gosh. (laughs) Both and. and. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Uh, So accepting 
And then still realizing you do desire a change to reach the life you want. And so at the same time, feeling like you can accept where you are, but work towards that. What tips or strategies do you have for the acceptance piece? Um, I hear, you know, love yourself now, all these things thrown around, but it's it's very hard, I think, for a lot of people. It's easier to do the stuff, the and part, like, and you can start doing these actions throughout your day to work towards where you want to be. People are very well versed in that, but not so much in the acceptance part. So what what do you have to give us about that? Yeah. And, and, and the problem with doing the change without the acceptance piece is you will fail. Exactly. Right. Like you're like, how many times do people started diets or start, like if it were easy to do, you would have been successful already. And so I think Mm -hmm. there's two parts of that. I think, um, for me, acceptance is really about adopting a non-judgmental stance towards yourself, which is so unbelievably difficult because we are, designed to judge ourselves, right? We from like, you know, your, your parents say, don't do that. Don't touch that. Like you're a bad child. Like, why can't you do like judgments are, and also judgment is sort of evolutionarily necessary for us to be able to make good decisions. That's bad. This is good. Our brains are sort of hardwired to not die through judgment. Mm -hmm. And we've evolved though, to this place where like not every decision is life and death. And so taking a step back from the, kind of chronic insidious self-judgment is so fundamentally important in terms of acceptance. So I didn't get everything done that I wanted to do today. And that's okay. Instead of, and I'm a bad person, um, really starting to notice. And this is where the mindfulness comes in of when we are sort of imbuing ourselves with those judgments, those negative thoughts, those things that don't really help us Mm -hmm. um, and giving ourselves a break is really where we need to start with acceptance. And that's where identifying what are my thought patterns? Like what are, what are the stories that I tell myself that are not very useful or maybe at one point were really useful, but I don't need them anymore. And how do I kind of let go of those things? So noticing, starting to notice those Um, what I call little red flags stories that we tell ourselves that I bet you could identify five of them right now. Now that I say Mm -hmm. that, like, what are the Mm -hmm. things that you sort of are just habituated to tell yourself that really kind of don't serve you things you would never say to a friend, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Identifying those and then catching yourselves in those moments where you hear it to start to cultivate that awareness and then change the narrative a little bit. So for Mm -hmm. example, um, I'm such a failure. I can't make anything work can turn into something like, you know, this thing I didn't do to this thing I did today didn't work. And like, that's okay. I can try again tomorrow. The emotional um, connection to those two statements are really, really different. Hmm. Right. If I sort of say to you, Brooke, you're terrible. I can't believe you messed up that podcast like this. Um, that you would feel awful if I said that to you versus if I said, Brooke, let's talk about some things that um, I really liked about how you did this podcast today and, and things where maybe um, maybe you want to improve. Mm-hmm. That has a really different emotional balance to it. So starting to identify those stories that we tell ourselves that kind of make us feel like crap and changing the narrative to adopt what I call a more non-judgmental stance around them is a really great place to start. If someone has young kids and they want to raise them in a way where hopefully emotional eating isn't something that stands in their way of the life they want, do you have any tips for parents of just strategies they can use either around eating or just 
helping kids cope mentally with different situations rather than turning to food. Any any tips? Yeah, I think all of those same four domains of strategies and tools are, I wish we could teach DBT in, in school. Mm. Like I'm like a big proponent of, we should be teaching people how to be mindful, how to emotionally regulate, how to tolerate hard things and how to communicate. Those are sort of like the four pillars of kind of being a healthy person. And so learning those skills, I think really identifying the places where you maybe are not <laughs> doing those things, correcting them in yourself um, so that you can then, it's sort of a little bit like put your own oxygen mask on first before mm-hmm. you, um, you help help others. I think those sort of teaching those skills to your kids um, but it's really hard. Kids are very stressful and like they trick, they are like kids can be our biggest triggers. Right. And, mm-hmm. and we're, we're sort of knee jerk. We want to react the same way that we were conditioned. And so it, it takes a lot of work. I don't want to make it sound like it's oh just so easy to parent your kids. Well, but I do think that like, you know, kids are pretty resilient. And if we're doing like a good enough job, I think they can, they can learn mm-hmm. another acceptance piece, right? We don't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think with kids, the other really, the, the, the most sort of powerful parenting um, thing that I, I can acknowledge is that when you do make a mistake with your children um, to own it and to model, again, that self-acceptance, you know what? Like, oh, I noticed I, um, I kind of this urge to like reach for a cookie right now because I'm, you know what? I'm going to go take a walk instead, or I'm going to have a glass of water or even, you know what? I'm going to notice this behavior and I'm still going to have that cookie because it's mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. So again, it's about being mindful of the choices you're making and making sure that they are values aligned mm-hmm. um, is really and modeling that. Right. Modeling is so critical. I was a teacher for 12 years and that was like, the biggest thing, you know, just model, model, model for kids. And, you know, we learn often by example and visuals and somebody talking out their thought process is so much more helpful often than just saying, do this. It's like, well, what does that look like? Like, show me what that looks like. And that's what modeling does, which is awesome. Totally. Yeah. You've mentioned so many skills. You said there are hundreds. So is the idea that somebody would expose themselves to all of these different choices of skills and then pick and choose the ones that work best for them. That's what we've seen in the research, which is was a really interesting finding because there are a lot of skills in DBT. And by the way, um, my book is pretty old. I think it's like eight or 10 years old by now. And there might be, I just want to say there might be better DBT for emotional eating books out there than mine. So like read Amazon reviews. We haven't done a lot of revision. <laughs> so I really, I would like, I, I'm a huge believer in the concept and the, and the therapy, but um, don't, don't just go out and buy my book. Like go, mm. go see if there are newer, better versions, like that get better reviews out there. Um, I think that I completely lost track of your question. Oh, I was just saying, can you pick and choose the skills and kind of create your own toolbox? Yes, exactly. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. That's That's literally what what I write in the first. It's like, my job is to teach you how to create your own toolbox. Uh, That's what I want you to do. And what we found in the research when we did these studies is that people tended to gravitate towards four or five skills that worked for them and then just use them over and over and over again. And so you, there is a little bit of experimentation, right? Is that the same thing is not going to work for you that works for someone else. And I think one of the other acceptance pieces is to really realize and understand that no matter how good your toolbox is, 
probably won't feel quite as good as eating that Mm. whatever, Mm -hmm. (laughs) eating that thing, because just from a neurochemical perspective, eating that thing is going to, you know, regulate you or numb you out really, really fast. And so there is some tolerance to that. Now, this is where, as we were talking about a little bit before, like, I think the, um, sort of the excitement around some of these GLP-1 drugs like Wagovi and Ozempic and that turn off the food noise um, that are out there on the market are really powerful because if you can turn off that noise and then learn the skills and the strategies to, um, to really sort of help um, change your relationship with food, I I think that um, there's a real excitement around that. Mm -hmm. If I know they're expensive, I mean, some people, they're not covered by their insurance. Hopefully we get to a place where they're more accessible, which I would imagine would be the case as with all drugs, like over time, they get cheaper and more accessible. But in this current state, do you feel like accessing one of those drugs and then working through the strategies and creating your toolbox is a great course of action for many people? Or do you feel like you can access the tools and make your own toolbox without the drugs and try that first? Or what? how do you approach this? Yeah, again, it goes to like, I don't think there's a one size fits all for those folks who are lucky enough to have it covered. I mean, you have to be diabetes, mm. right? To, to um, get them covered by insurance or meet certain criteria. So I don't know if I would say that is lucky. I do think that um, what we hear from the experience of taking these drugs is it can make it, um, again, that food noise when it turns off is so unbelievably powerful that it can make learning, it can give a window for learning the skills much easier. But I do think that the skills can be learned by anyone on or off the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it, it's a little bit unfair because it's it's hard to fight your biology. And so I think it's really important to understand that, um, that, um, you know, this the the answer is not perfection here. The answer is sort of like accepting that you can start to learn about your own behavior, potentially to make some changes in it to improve your life. But mm-hmm. that may um, that may look different um, for different mm-hmm. people and at different times. And like accepting that there's only so much you can do to fight your biology, that your biology is pretty powerful. Mm-hmm. And so that to, to hopefully that alleviates shame in folks who are sort of um, fighting with it. And I sort of think of like the, um, the a, a pattern that we see a lot in uh, people who have tried, tried to lose weight or control their relationship with food or improve their relationship with food their whole lives. There, you know, most folks that I see, they started however many, I mean, I don't know how many diets have people been on before when you start to see them. Like I ate some since they were 12 years old. Exactly. And so at that point, you've, you've also sort of your biology is, has been attuned to cycling, which makes Mm -hmm. it even harder. Um, And so just being kind to yourself and really aware that, you know, this is not, it's not about willpower. It's not about control. It's really just about what are the small things that I can learn about myself and maybe substitute in other tools instead of doing this thing that kind of makes me feel bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And hopefully over time that can kind of really no pun intended, feed on itself. Uh, we're recording this a couple of weeks before Christmas. I had a prospective client hop on a call yesterday and she started Ozempic and she's looking for coaching and accountability and support with 
all these kind of healthy lifestyle things she's starting to implement. But she was describing how she's going to holiday parties this year. And for the first time in her entire life, she's not hyper fixated on the amount of food on her plate versus the amount on other plates and how she wishes she could have more on her plate because that person has more. But then they have they still have cake left, but she doesn't have cake. She said the food noise was so intense. She could barely have a conversation. Oh, yeah. And now she said she put a small portion of desserts that looked good to her on her plate. And she didn't care at all what was on other people's plate. And she just said she could just enjoy this party and had this aha moment of like, oh, my God, other other people's brains are just like this. And they don't have that food noise all the time. And it's 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 amazing to me how much relief. Now, look, we don't to caveat that we don't know a lot about these drugs in terms of weight loss versus diabetes control. Like we have to be really responsible and mindful, but it is really powerful. It's really, really powerful the way that these drugs are impacting the brain um, and appetite and satiety and attention, attentional bias and food noise. And it's, Mm -hmm. and the relief that people get from the shame of, of their brain just being broken. And for so long, we've, we've, stigmatized folks for um, not having willpower and not having self-control. And, and it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's so nice. I know. So nice to say like, no, this is biology. Mm -hmm. This is not like the the idea that willpower is somehow separate than biology in itself is a ridiculous statement. (laughs) Totally. One of the final questions I ask each of my guests is in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? What does that mean exactly? <laughs> the health investment. So I guess just investing in yourself. What does that look like? If you were to make the health investment in your life, what is what does that? What look does that like look like for me personally? Or yeah, or yeah, in general. To me, I think it starts like I'll circle back full circle. I really think it's about acceptance and a non-judgmental stance. Mm. It's really sort of understanding that, um, starting to understand what what is the life that I want to live and how do I make the small steps to do that? And is it worth it? Mm -hmm. Right? Because if you're killing yourself every day to behave in a way that isn't getting you to a life, like you're missing out on your life. So really knowing what are the things that are really valuable? What are the things that are really important to me? And then kind of asking yourself, am I doing the things, am I behaving in the way, am I acting in line with those values? To me, that's what health investment is all about. Yeah. I love that. Where can listeners follow and find you? Yeah. So I am, um, where can they, so I'm on LinkedIn. I am most of my ats are my, whatever my handles are at Dr. Sarah Adler, D-R-S-A-R-A-H-A-D-L-E-R. I am a terrible social media user. LinkedIn is my most, um, my most prolific. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. I sort of have, I'm like not really sort of on Instagram and Twitter and the other things, but, um, and then I also, uh, you can follow me at my, my, uh, company, which is all about um, making behavioral health more accessible and um, to everyone, not just people who can afford it. And that's um, at wavelife.io. So um, that's kind of my my most recent project and what I'm working on now. Awesome. Well, I'll put links to those things and to your book, which I'm sure still holds up (laughs) in 2023. (laughs) 
It does. We, 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 it does hold up. People are still reprinting it, but like, we really need to go back and we need to like modernize it and make it better. Like it never really had a V2. So we need to right, go back right. and do that. Well, you'll do that. But in the time being, I still am going to buy your book and I'll also look, maybe there's another updated one I can use as a companion, but awesome. I'm looking forward to diving more into this myself and with my clients. And I am just so grateful for your time today and all of the wisdom you shared with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was super fun and and I hope everyone has happy holidays. Well, that's all for today. Thanks again for joining me here on the Health Investment Podcast. I'm so grateful for each and every one of my listeners. On your way out, remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.